Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 135. It is time for this month's Q&A, so I'm going to be flying solo for this episode. Um, we've got a few different questions that were submitted both via email as well as on some of our Instagram Q&As. And just as a friendly reminder, if there's you know topics that you'd like covered, by all means, please reach out. It's EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Also take uh, recommendations on show guests and ideas and things like that. So don't be shy about reaching out. And while we're at it, it would be amazing if you would consider taking the time to not only subscribe to the podcast, but also leave us a review on iTunes. Um, So without further ado, let's get to this month's questions. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exerciser life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. For our first question of this month's Q&A, we got a submission by email, and it began with, obviously, arm injuries have skyrocketed over the past decade across all levels of baseball, but they've been especially bad since COVID threw a wrench in the yearly calendar plans of a lot of players. I know you've supported some of the highest profile athletes through their rehabs at CSP during this time, so I'm curious as to whether there have been any evolutions in your thought process on how you view or manage players through the Tommy John rehab process. Um, I think this is actually a great question um, because there actually have been a number of areas where 
not necessarily necessarily change things, but our perspectives on what norms are in place has actually been, um, you know, markedly different in the, in the last six to 12 months. Had some good conversations with, with Eric Schoenberg and Tanner Allen and Tyler Brady, who are three physical therapists at the Florida facility. Um, I'd say that, you know, the first one is, just kind of like a genuine uh, understanding of, of return to throwing timelines. Um, I think historically we've seen, uh, you know, four months kind of being the date that, that a lot of surgeons circled on the calendar. And I, I always thought it was just a little bit too soon. And there were, there were a couple of reasons for that. The first one is um, you're still dealing with a situation, which I'll kind of t- touch on in a, in a later response to this, where, you know, the, the graft is still very, very immature at that point. You know, there's um, basically a, a situation where you're actually getting, um, you know, more remodeling and revascularization in that early time period. And it, it just seems like people are very, very different at months five and six than they are at month four. And so what you get is you, you often get a very, very tentative athlete um, who may have just gotten back to where they need to be range of motion wise. And they're often very, very sensitive to actually laying their arm back into external rotation. So you, you often get this very pushy motion. Um, so for that reason, I always kind of like the idea of waiting a little bit longer and then maybe doing a little bit of a faster ramp up and spending a lot, instead of spending a lot of time potentially, you know, developing bad habits at really short distances. Um, it seemed like, you know, going to five or six months was, was a little bit more of an, an opportune way to attack it. Um, you know, every, every surgeon has their preferences and I do know that there are several, you know, kind of premier orthopedics in, on the, you know, in the country who like that five month mark. And I've become more and more, um, a fan of it. I'd say over the last two years is, is waiting that extra month. And what's nice about that five month mark is it really gives us an opportunity to train rotational power more before getting folks throwing. Um, so I like to see symmetrical strength by about, you know, four, four and a half months. So, you know, equal loading on the injury side as the uninjured side. Um, and what that allows us to do is start to throw the med ball, start to build up the strength where it needs to be before we start playing catch. I just, I just don't love the idea of actually initiating a throwing program before we have symmetrical strength between sides and before we've actually gotten the lower half going and trained some rotational patterns. So that month four to five is really a great time to start attacking med ball just a little bit more. And, and that's something that I think will be a mainstay in our program moving forward. Um, and, and I even think you'll, you'll see some, um, you know, surgeons that will even push closer and closer to six months just so that we have a more highly trained athlete before they get started on their throwing program. And it kind of leads into my, my next observation is that I think sometimes in the rehab process, we focus too much on means and not enough on standard deviations. Um, so in a previous podcast, I think the title was Tommy John Timelines. Um, Stan Conti, you know, was a, was an awesome guest just looking at, you know, all things injury norms. Um, and, and he talked about it in uh, Jeff Dugas. Um, you know, from the Andrews Institute also had some great thoughts on this where, you know, we've kind of come to this point where we recognize 14 months is kind of this timeline that we would expect folks to return from Tommy John on. And what Dr. Dugas did a great job of, of emphasizing is that there's actually a six to eight week standard deviation in both directions. Um, you know, some people are going to come back faster. You might have some folks who are true years and you have others that are going to be closer to 16 months. Um, you know, individual response to healing and getting range of motion back and all that is going to impact that. And certainly the time of year is going to impact when folks return to their previous level of competition. 
Um, and I think one variable that's starting to impact this more and more is that we we're just not seeing nearly as many, you know, Tommy John only's where it's just a UCL reconstruction. Nowadays we have hybrid techniques that, you know, that may actually shorten return times where they're utilizing the, you know, the damaged native UCL and trying to repair that alongside the UCL reconstruction. Um, so in doing so, you might be getting a little bit extra fortification. We're seeing more and more flexor repairs at the same time as UCL reconstructions, you know, which would slow it down. You know, obviously we're seeing removals of bone spurs, you know, work with loose bodies, ulnar nerve transpositions. Very rarely do you just see a, a Tommy John in isolation nowadays. There's many, many layers to this that, you know, one way or another probably increase the likelihood that there could be something that either speeds up the process for some people or slows it down. Um, and, and so I think we need to be mindful of, of, of not just adhering vehemently to the norm and instead, you know, rehabbing the person that's in front of us, taking a look at their post-op notes and how they're progressing. So I think that's really um, an important consideration for anybody that, that does rehabilitate folks. And I think what it also does is it kind of leads into this next point about, I, like many people, I'm nervous about what's coming with revisions. Um, and, and what that means is, you know, uh, Dr. Christopher Camp, who's a previous guest on this, actually just posted um, on an excellent study. Uh, Dr. Alchek was involved on it. Dr. Dines, um, you know, our team doctor with the Yankees. Dr. Maud was on it. Stan Connie was another author. Really, really good paper um, that came out. Uh, the title of the, the paper, if you do want to check it out, it's Revision Ulnar Collateral Ligament Reconstruction in Professional Baseball. And it was, it was done out of the Mayo Clinic, but involved some great people from a number of different places. And they looked at 69 major league pitchers between 2010 and 2016. 77% of them returned uh, to play. Excuse me, that wasn't just major leaguers, that was minor leaguers as well. But 77% of them returned to play and you know, 55% of them returned to the same level of competition. And the average was about 14.5 months. So a little bit longer than what you would expect on a, on a typical Tommy John. But I think that's a really, really important thing to backtrack and look at is 77% success rate on a Tommy John revision is not what you're getting on, on initial UCLs. And when you also look at 55% of them are coming back to the same level, that means a major leaguer might be coming back as a minor leaguer 45% of the time. Um, that means that a minor leaguer might be coming back as a, as an independent ball player. So we're realizing that the second reconstruction, the, the, the success rates are dramatically lower. And I think we've always known that, but I think what's really, really concerning is that those second reconstructions are sometimes happening in kids who are 23 years old who first had this when they were 15. So I'm, I'm genuinely very nervous um, just about the direction the industry is going as, as more and more kids have had these at younger ages. Um, you know, at some point there's, there's probably a useful life on some of these ligament reconstructions. Um, you know, and, and hopefully sports medicine can keep up with some of the pace on this so that, you know, people aren't just getting left out to dry when their, their ligament wears out after a period of time and they still have a lot of good baseball in them. You know, the other hope is also that obviously rehabilitation protocols, will continue to improve, you know, over the course of time. And, and I actually think, you know, to, to lead into my next point, um, that, that we are seeing good progressions in the way that we rehabilitate folks. You know, I, I think in general, getting motion, 
you know, post-operatively is easier than ever before. We've seen fewer athletes who have struggled to get motion um, and, and certainly fewer athletes that have dealt with significant atrophy. Um, you know, like things like the Mark Pro, you know, have been very, very vital for, you know, actually, you know, stimulating blood flow, kind of an alternative to icing in some of these scenarios to to actually get, you know, the lymphatic system, the vascular system doing their jobs. Um, so I think that's, you know, important thing. And then BFR, um, blood flow restricted training, seems to have really changed the game with respect to how arms can, you know, bounce back, you know, in the recovery modes, but also how we can use it to, you know, kind of preserve uh, muscle mass as folks are on the you know, the rehab timeline. So there have been a lot of, of really cool, um, you know, opportunities to kind of get better from a sports medicine standpoint. And they're, they're working with surgical advances so that, you know, effectively sports medicine can keep up with, with high level performance as athletes are throwing harder and harder and they're doing it at younger ages, you know, than ever before. Um, so that's several observations. And then one last one I, I did want to throw out there just cause I, um, you know, I think I'm talking about you know, progressions in many cases, like, you know, progressing, you know, in the way that we deliver throwing programs, the timelines on it, what we initiate from a rehab standpoint with various things like, you know, blood flow restricted training, or, you know, even just, you know, better techniques for surgical approaches. I think there's also a place for regressions. And one of the things that, you know, one particular case jumps out at me was an, an athlete who was really struggling to gain some flexion back in 2020. He was at about the six month mark. He had seen, you know, one of the premier ortho, orthos in the country um, for it and was, you know, about six or seven months post-op um, and just really struggling to get flexion and having quite a bit of discomfort. And his surgeon, you know, recommended, Hey, I, I just need you to take a month off. And it was right in the middle of a throwing program. Rarely do you see someone who, you know, kind of at that six or seven month mark just takes a month altogether. Um, but it was one of those things where he had had, you know, some issues with range and the, the surgeon recommended it and um, actually gave him some anti-inflammatories alongside it just to kind of help the process. And I had a call with him and, and our physical therapist at, at our facility, Eric Schoenberg. We were on the call and, you know, he was throwing some ideas out there more in the context of, you know what, I think I'll, uh, you know, I'll just keep throwing plow care balls and, you know, I'll, I'll just keep throwing the football, but I'll step away from the baseball. And we just stopped him in his tracks and we said, rest is rest. Like, if you're going to do this, do it right. You know, don't test the waters every single day. If this elbow is cranky, you need to give it a shot to settle down. Um, and, and to his credit, he took a step back, you know, took the medicine that the doctor recommended, gave it a true month, and it has been smooth sailing ever since. Range of motion improved exponentially. He'd just been beating his head against the wall so much trying to get motion. He took a step back, and literally a month later, he had 20 more degrees of elbow flexion. He had no more symptoms. And the elbow's been pristine all the way along. And I think, you know, one of my own shortcomings is I've probably fought full rest for, for so long. And maybe I speak to it more in a systemic context. Um, but there are going to be times when you get a joint that's really hot and it needs some treatments and just some downtime and potentially some medicine to bounce back. So that's something that I'm going to keep in my back pocket as we, you know, have conversations about Tommy John in the years ahead, just because I do think there's, you know, there's always a situation where it may be really, really advantageous. Um, the, the last kind of point I wanted to mention as a, a learning point is, you know, I think over the course of the last couple of years, we've seen athletes who have had Tommy John early in the season and we've had them late in the season. That was probably one of the more interesting things about professional baseball last year, as you saw, you know, still arm injuries being high late in the season, presumably because they hadn't built back up their capacity um, coming off of, you know, a down year from a volume standpoint due to COVID. Um, but what I, you know, I look really, really closely at these athletes who have Tommy John in February or March 
versus the ones that have it in September. Um, and if you look at the February and March ones, you have to really consider what's happening. And, and you know, the, the research isn't always pristine from a UCL standpoint, but the ACL literature is something we can look at closely because, you know, at the end of the day, you're asking a tendon to become a ligament in both of those cases. So that, that ligamentization excuse me, ligamentization process ranges from like a really vulnerable initial state all the way to full maturation. And it's, it's pretty variable. So, you know, the same circumstance, like I said, are present with ACL tears and the research is a lot more plentiful on knees than it is on elbows. It's generally agreed upon that tissue remodeling, revascularization of the ACL takes about six to 12 months, but you may not get full maturation of the graft until two years post-op. And I've heard several top-notch, you know, orthopedists, um, you know, who have done a lot of elbow surgery say that ligamentization is also likely about an 18 month process after Tommy John surgery. So it takes about 18 months for that ligament to really take on the proper, excuse me, the tendon to really take on the property of the, the ligament that it's replaced. Um, and so there's going to be an average there. Some are going to be earlier, some are going to be later, but we also know it's about 14 months average return to the previous, you know, level of competition. So using a February Tommy John as an example, you know, that 14 month mark is going to basically be the following April. So you put yourself in that athlete's shoes trying to come back. He may be pitching in an environment that's freezing cold and he can't feel his fingers in April. And there's still probably a good, you know, anywhere from, you know, four to 10 months remaining on him trying to get um, all the way back, you know, to, to a normal feeling in his ligament. So it stands to reason that you're gonna have a lot of high level pitchers and high level competition before the elbow feels 100% normal. And if we look at a lot of those spring 2020 Tommy Johns, a lot of them struggled in the latter half of 2021 when they came back. Um, but what's really interesting is the athletes who were September-ish Tommy Johns, um, Justin Verlander this year in professional baseball being a great example. It's it's not nearly as problematic for those who have surgery at the end of the season because they do their one year pro throwing program. They work all the way back up to you know bullpens and show off their velocity, and then they kind of shut it down and just have a normal off season and then ramp up into the normal spring. They they complete their ligamentization process in the off season slash spring training after sitting out you know the full season. So you know the the take home on this is that normal comes at different times. The time of year when a Tommy John takes place can dictate when that happens. I think a lot of the spring and summer 2020 MLB Tommy Johns are going to be in a much better place in 2022 as we've already seen. And, you know, there are certainly a, a lot of guys out there that have forgotten what it's like to actually feel good. And we need to give them time to kind of get their feet underneath us. It seems like those, those fall Tommy Johns generally do a little bit better with their initial return. And there are some people that do need that subsequent year. So, um, just some interesting lessons learned. I think we, we talk so much in terms of, you know, the actual average months it takes to come back. But a lot of times it really has to do with what time of year it's happening and whether baseball is taking place and how competitive that baseball is. Um, but the last thing I would say underneath this, this question about what's changed is I think we have to emphasize what hasn't changed about Tommy John rehabilitation. And that's that it's an opportunity, not just a setback. I can't overstate this enough to the, the players, the parents, the coaches, the rehab specialists, the strength and conditioning coaches who listen to this is... Never in your baseball career outside of, you know, a post-op timeline, do you really get a year to a year and a half to just get your body right to really work on not just making sure that elbow is back to normal, but optimizing all the upper extremity motion, um, getting your lower half working, putting on a muscle mass, adding some strength, leaning out, 
adjusting your diet, all those things, you're never going to get that continuity in a baseball environment otherwise. So I just can't overstate enough to, to young athletes to make sure that you view it as an opportunity and not just a setback. Um, at current count, we have about seven major league players who are rehabbing at our Florida facility who have been sent home early by their teams. Um, the majority are Tommy John surgeries. They've started up with us. Um, you know, there are a few that are flexor repairs or, you know, other initiatives, but just a, a, an interesting thing on a daily basis that I find myself emphasizing to them is that this is an opportunity to get better, to learn more about how you move and what you need to do to be successful long term. So don't waste it. Make sure you take advantage of, of every day through that process. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. For our second question this month, we have, what's your approach to an athlete that has a hip external rotation slash internal rotation total motion difference of greater than 10 degrees? Um, it's actually an excellent question. And, and before I answer it, let's just give um, the rest of our listeners who may not be familiar with it a brief history of the total motion concept. Um, basically, there was some evidence um, in the literature that looked at um, shoulder motion. So internal plus external rotation measured at 90 degrees. Um, of abduction. We looked at baseball pitchers, ER and IR added up should create a number called total motion. And what we want to see is relatively symmetrical total motion between sides. So if you have 180 degrees of total motion on your throwing shoulder, you know, it should be somewhat consistent on your non-throwing shoulder. Now, keep in mind that that arc may be shifted. Usually we'll see more shoulder external rotation on a dominant shoulder and less internal rotation on that both because of humeral retroversion, so kind of a warping of the growth plate um, that allows for more external rotation, and also potentially due to some, some soft tissue changes um, you know, that may take place in the posterior rotator cuff as a response to all the eccentric stress during acceler uh, deceleration. Um, and certainly some of the alignment things may play into this that we, you know, we talk about with respect to the Posture Restoration Institute. If you go into kind of the history of this um, podcast, check out the one I did with Mike Reinold a couple years ago, as well as the one on asymmetry with Ron Hruska from the Posture Restoration Institute. You'll pick up some great stuff. So the idea is we want relatively symmetrical total motion between right and left shoulders, dominant and non-dominant sides in a healthy shoulder. And when those are way out of whack, we have to start asking some questions. Um, and typically what we see more of a problem, contrary to what was you know previously believed, is that a lack of shoulder external rotation on a dominant side seems to be more and more of a problem. Um, but internal rotation is certainly an important consideration. But with that said, this question is about hips. So the first question is, do these same principles apply to the hip? And I think it's a really, really good question. And, and, you know, and truthfully, I can't tell you one way or another, um, but I would say that for the most part, they should stay relatively symmetrical, even if that arc is a little bit shifted as a response to, you know, imposed demand. Now, with that said, what's different about the hip and the shoulders that the shoulder is a joint that's obviously geared towards much more mobility, whereas the hip is one that's geared towards much more stability. So it's, um, you know, much deeper hip socket. There's a thicker femoral neck. 
which gives rise to less motion than a shoulder would have. And that was, you know, born out of the fact that we have to weight bear on it. So what we do see very, very commonly um, in hips that we don't necessarily in shoulders is we see a lot of adaptive changes to the bone. Certainly, you know, some shoulders will lay down, you know, osteophytes, things like that. You know, the acromion process may be shaped differently in certain people versus the others, but we very rarely see the crazy bony changes in shoulders that we see with hips. I mean, there was actually a great study from, um, from Dr. Mark Pillipon at Seven Hawkins Clinic that looked at, at hockey players. I want to say he looked at 12, 14, 16, and 18 year old hockey players and compared them to skiers as controlled, as controls. And as those players age, their incidence of more elastic impingement and labral tears went up to, I believe, a hundred percent in, in that group by age 18. So all of them laid down bony changes. They, you know, they developed either bony overgrowth on the head of the femur or on the acetabulum, the hip socket, or on both, which in and of itself is going to create limitations to hip flexion and internal rotation in particular. So it's not uncommon at all to see these reactive changes becoming more you know, significant. And what will we typically see usually on a right-handed pitcher, you'll see a right hip that lays down a lot more reactive changes, unless we're talking about an athlete that maybe has a very closed off delivery and really aggressively works into, into hip internal rotation upon landing. So what that speaks to is I'm not sure that the same uh, level of symmetry is, is, is realistic to expect in a baseball population just because that back hip probably adapts so much more from a bony standpoint than the shoulder. Now, with that said, I think what we do need to do is ask why is the motion different? First off, what is the limiting factor? I'd say historically, you're going to see a lot of, of trailing hips that lack hip internal rotation. So we can ask, you know, Hey, is it a, is it an actual bony block? Is it something, you know, on lines of what I've just discussed? Or is it a situation where maybe it's some protective tension where, you know, they, you know, are effectively creating a tightness, a guarding, um, for one reason or another. You'll, you know, you'll certainly see people who have, um, longstanding hip problems that present as groin pain or low back pain. So some of those things can limit folks. Um, you know, and I think the other thing is, there, is there an actual alignment issue? So in many cases with people that are very shifted through their pelvis, they have one hip that's very elevated. Um, you know, they may be like a classic posture restoration candidate where they're very adducted and internally rotated on the right side, abducted and externally rotated on the left side. That would be what was called a left AIC pattern. And we need to learn how to get them into their left hip and, and out of their right hip. And in many cases that will translate improve motion really, really quickly. And then we just need to train smart and, and get it to stabilize. Um, what I will add to this, and this is actually fresh in my mind because I saw an athlete the other day that was an interesting case. He's a, an early rehab case that's back to the, the facility in the off season. And he had had longstanding shoulder problems that he finally had decided to have addressed surgically after playing internationally, um, this season. I had seen him over the course of time. He had a right hip that was very wonky, you know, kind of presented as about 15 degrees of internal rotation with, you know, a symptomatic flexion, adduction, internal rotation test. So a fader was symptomatic, mildly symptomatic on a faber. So flexion, abduction, external rotation, two things that are making you think that this is a, a hip impingement guy, potentially with some, some labral stuff. It was never limiting, but it was something that, you know, on a table would jump out and, but what was intriguing is that he finally needed to get his shoulder worked on. So he, he had his surgery and I just evaluated him a couple of days ago. Um, and he's about five weeks post-op on his surgery. He's actually just getting out of his sling. And what was really fascinating is he had about 30 degrees of hip internal rotation. 
So just the act of taking him away from playing baseball, even in spite of the fact that he's kind of been limited on what he can do in terms of actually supporting himself on his arms. He, he couldn't do a lot of the classic mobility exercises that we would use. Um, you know, just getting him away from his sport has actually allowed him to achieve greater motion. So I think there's something to be said about that because one, overuse may be a contributing factor um, to, to players losing range of motion. Sometimes they just need a little bit of washout. They need to tone down, get in a dark room, breathe deeply, whatever it may be, sleep more. Um, and we certainly see, have seen athletes whose range of motion is poor when they're stressed or sleep deprived or something like that. But I think the other thing is it probably tells us that a lot of times with our training programs, we're just working really hard to play for the tie in that there's an adaptation that's coming from playing, you know, baseball or whatever sport we're discussing at a very high level. And the daily mobility work, the daily soft tissue work, the positional breathing, all the stuff that we're trying to do from recovery, mobility, stabilization standpoint, is probably just geared towards them not shifting too far in the wrong direction. So, um, you know, it's a it's a conversation I often have with my good buddy Brett McCabe, who's with me with the Yankees. We we talk about sometimes you play for the tie with guys, um, and I think this is a great example of you know sometimes you're you're really doing an athlete a, a great service when you just prevent them from losing motion, even if you don't gain new motion. So, um, I think the you know total motion concept is great in a shoulder. I'm not sure it's perfectly applied in a hip. Um, but, you know, I think we need to always be mindful of asking why is this hip stiff and, you know, is it worth the, the cost of going to the next step to try to chase more range of motion when there's a possibility we might be plowing into a bony block, but we want to be mindful of not losing more motion if they are already pretty asymmetrical. While I've got your ear, I wanted to give you a heads up on a free baseball training webinar you'll receive when you subscribe to my free baseball newsletter. In that webinar, we talk about why different athletes need different approaches to power development, why it's essential that you learn to train outside the sagittal plane. We talk about the med balls and the plyometric variations that we like to use with baseball players at Cressy Sports Performance. We speak to why not all throwers have identical deceleration patterns or training needs. And we also speak to how your arm care programs can be improved to reduce the risk of injury and improve throwing velocity. If you want to check out this webinar, just head to ericcressy.com backslash baseball dash content. Again, that's ericcressy.com backslash baseball dash content. I think you'll really like it and learn a lot and it'll help you in your training. For our third and final question of the day, we have a quick one. It says, the more I learn, the more stressful I find programming for athletes, particularly in the baseball realm where there are so many competing demands. Any tips for this? Um, so yes, I, I do have some tips and I should first off, you know, maybe recognize that this is an incredibly common problem, not just for new coaches, but also for experienced coaches. I think one of the, the more challenging things is not you know, a coach who's been doing this a couple of decades now is you go to a seminar and you have to really consciously be aware of not coming back and throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, you don't want to throw away all the things that have worked. Instead, you tinker, you maybe add that 1%, you modify things on the fly um, because of the curse of knowledge is a very real thing that can lead to a lot of 
you know, frustrated tapping on the keyboard as you write up programs for clients that don't really require things that are necessarily that advanced. So, you know, a couple strategies that I've found to really help. First, you need to identify the biggest rocks and, and circle them. So when I do an evaluation, I'm incredibly meticulous with my note taking. And after I'm done with it, I may actually go back and either highlight if it's on a computer or circle if it's something I'm scribbling down on paper. I want to really highlight those two to three things that I view as the highest priority items. And, you know, you can even like challenge yourself to say, this is what I'm going to discuss with a parent when I finish up evaluating a teenager, or this is what I'm going to relate to an agent after I see one of his players. Um, it may be very limited cervical motion, you know, poor single leg stability, lack of scapular upward rotation. You know, if it's a resting heart rate in the 80 beats per minute range, range. Maybe we need to work on aerobic capacity. Regardless, I find when you definitively identify and highlight the highest priority items, it makes it easier to get the ball rolling on the program and build some momentum in the, you know, don't sit in silence and overthink things kind of state that we all have been at when we stare at a computer and we're fighting that urge to make things too complex for an athlete that may just need, you know, to, to understand prioritization of key principles. Second, I always think movement quality first. So when, when joints move efficiently or they, you know, in other words, they work from neutral, it has an impact on a host of other symptoms. You, you take longer to shift from aerobic to anaerobic energy system strategies when you work from neutral. The length tension relationship for, for muscles that are involved in force production is optimized to enhanced strength and power when you work from neutral. The lymphatic system works more efficiently to optimize recovery. So effectively, moving efficiently has this trickle down effect over multiple systems. And I think when I talk to, you know, the, the coaches that I really admire, the people that are really, really solid in this field, they're the ones that understand the relationships across multiple systems. Um, and I think that's a, a vitally important consideration that all comes back to quality movement. These downstream benefits are why we take so much pride in our warmups. You know, warmups shouldn't just get your body temperature up, but they should also work to reduce bad stiffness and improve good stiffness. For example, if we do a back-to-wall shoulder flexion drill, we're reducing the bad stiffness in the lats, the scapular downward rotators, the lumbar extensors, and meanwhile, we're establishing some good stiffness in the, you know, the anterior core, the external obliques, the rectus abdominis, the deep neck flexors, and the scapular upward rotators. Every exercise works on a a key interdependence between bad and good stiffness in the context of the, the chosen movement. So if you understand that, you understand how your coaching cues, how they breathe, all these different things impact it. It's a very powerful thing. Um, third, I think you need to acknowledge that you might never use some of the tools in your toolbox. Obviously, this is a huge thing in like the, the baseball world with respect to like weighted ball discussions when an eight year old comes in and asks, you know, should I be throwing weighted balls? It's like, no, you should learn how to throw a four seam and work on catch play and moving your feet and things like that. So, you know, I think if you're working with a, you know, post pregnancy client who's just looking to, you know, lose, you know, baby weight, you, you're not going to be throwing French contrast training at them, right? If senior citizens are your niche, your, your extensive knowledge of, you know, plyometric progression probably isn't going to have much of a, you know, a high quality output for them. So if you hire a contractor to fix something in your house and he rolls in with a toolbox, but he isn't emotionally attached to the idea of using a chainsaw hammer, or screwdriver, or any other specific tool, rather he's going to match the tool to the job in question, even if it means all the other tools may be unused for that day. So you have to, you know, take a similar approach to how you interact with athletes. You have to be willing to recognize that a lot of things you've learned over the years may in fact be completely useless for you in the context of the athlete in front of you. Um, fourth, 
I think it's vitally important to batch your programs. So believe it or not, I have an easier time writing a program for a professional baseball player with 10 years in the big leagues and tons of training experience than I do writing a program for an untrained female client. And the, and the reason is very simple. I write a lot more programs for baseball players. So it's familiar and I have a lot of related cases from which I can draw perspectives. In other words, X athlete is similar to Y athlete. So I can build on this success I had with that first athlete instead of reinventing the wheel. And for this reason, you know, trying to write multiple programs for similar demographics in the same, you know, sitting is, is really, really an efficient strategy. You don't want to break them out to different programming sessions where you mix them in with folks who are entirely different. Um, so if you're in this baseball realm, don't be like writing in programs for football program players and swimmers and things like that all at the same time, because you want to get your line of thought where it needs to be. As a general of thumb, I never write a training program, I never sit down to write a training program unless I'm going to do three to four programs in that sitting. So for me in that like five to 7 a.m. time block, I'm actually doing a lot of programming and, and trying to get into my zone with respect to that stuff. And then, you know, fifth and perhaps most importantly, always try to build on previous programs slash successes. Most of the time when I write a program, I'm writing it right on top of the previous month's programs so that I can easily, you know, you know, kind of create progressions or regressions if need to be. Um, so it can, you know, be a quick and easy adjustment on the fly so that we can assure that it, it's building on whatever happened, um, you know, the previous month. What I will say is you should never, ever start by staring at a, a blank programming template. The worst thing you can possibly do is try to work from a completely empty canvas and come up with something new. You always want to build on the previous successes. And that's why documentation, note-taking, things like that are so important during the evaluation process. It always allows you to check back and see what's worked and what hasn't. So you can really figure out what some of your key competencies and approaches are uh, moving forward. So just remember that you know program design is only as complex as you make it. Um, and when in doubt, you need to simplify. So that wraps up this month's Q&A. Really appreciate you tuning in. And like I said, don't be shy about reaching out, whether it's on one of our Instagram Q&As or via email at EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much.